Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We don't agonize, we organize. We've won some battles, but we still have more work to do. As you just heard, Mariah is back just in time for our Thanksgiving episode. So we're going to catch up about all the highs and lows of the week, of which there are many. Joining us for our interview in what is becoming an awesome Thanksgiving tradition is messaging and communications expert, Anat Shankara Osorio. She's one of our most favorite guests because she always brings amazing practical insight about how we talk to voters and each other. And then this week, our reasons for hope becomes our reasons for gratitude. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How how We Win. Win. I really want to know what's going on with you. I've missed you. You were overseas. Um, and I was. And I, am, I want to know how your trip was. I also want to know what do the Europeans think about us Americans right now? Well, let me be clear. I was in Paris. They're never going to think much of us. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, Especially um, after uh, the old submarine <laughs> debacle. I went to um, Paris and Spain to introduce the baby to the other side of his family, um, which uh, so grateful to have the opportunity to do that. Obviously, hadn't traveled at all since he was born. Um, His father's family had not met him and had only, you know, chatted with him via WhatsApp and FaceTime. Um, and my in-laws are, are in their 80s and 90s. So, you know, we said, uh, th- we, we, we got to see them at some point. Um, and got the boosters beforehand. Nice. Booster made me feel invincible. But I was still, <laughs> I was still very cautious. Um, but it was a great trip. But yeah, you know, um, people have, people always have a lot to say about about what's happening here. And we were in Paris at the same time as the vice president. So in fact, we were walking uh, away from the Eiffel Tower back towards our hotel and um, the street gets shut down. And uh, uh, my my husband, who has a lot of experience in security and, and dignitaries traveling, uh-huh. notice all these different vehicles coming and he said I bet it's her and so we're standing on the side of the street in Paris waving as the U.S. convoy goes by she waves back of course because you used to work for for her so she was probably like hey oh hey Mariah I see you over there yeah I'm sure she she noticed me standing on, on the street waving at her but she did wave back um which was so awesome and exciting and uh, you know, she did like a lot of traffic disruptions. I think that's the only thing that people there could complain about. Well, they're so used that to that fun. in Paris, aren't, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, she, but I will say the 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 U.S. convoy really tied up traffic like <laughs> to a, a probably unprecedented level. Um, but you know, she was there for uh, you know to lay a wreath at the Arc de Triomphe and have some um, meetings with the the French government. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a, a cool a cool time to be there. Like you said, I used to work for her, and so before she you know before she went into the Senate, so it felt like fun to kind of have that full circle moment. 
Totally. And I'm glad you were there to report on her trip because there has been very little reporting on that. There has been a lot to report on over here stateside, uh, but I, I don't want her great work to go unnoticed, too, because it largely is. It's not reported on. And I don't know if that's just I'm digressing a little bit from what we're going to talk about, but I don't know if that's her or the nature of the vice presidency in general or a combination of both. But um, uh, I would like to hear more about the great work that she's doing for sure. I think it's a combination of both. And I really think she's just, you know, just in such a, a tough position. I think it's one of those things you can point to where people are so like over, overly critical and you know, to be the first Black woman vice president, um, I do feel like I've been very disappointed with the coverage yeah. because when she's had wins, they haven't been covered very much. Um, but when she's had challenges, it's been overkill. Uh, yeah. She so. was she was the first uh, woman and first Black woman, of course, to have the full powers of the presidency, mm -hmm. albeit for a brief period while... Um, uh, President Biden was getting a colonoscopy, which brings us full circle because we've talked about colonoscopies a <laughs> lot on our podcast. And uh, and so she found herself in the seat of power. See what I did there? Oh, my God. That's so bad. <laughs> this has got to get edited out. Or maybe it gets left in for posterity. Um, ah, uh, posterity. So, <laughs> there you go. So, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yes, she was very briefly the actual. Well, let's talk about um, our news of the week, what happened here stateside while you were gone uh, and partially while you were back. Um, mm -hmm. Most there's been, as, as we said in the intro, some real highs and lows, and we've been talking about them while you, you were gone, too. Uh, there's been a lot of good stuff happening in Congress, including the House finally passed mm -hmm. the Build Back Better Act, um, including putting in the parental leave provision it is yeah. now going to the Senate. And the key players in the House are very optimistic that it will get through the Senate. They say that they've been negotiating these terms in good faith with the Senate all, all the way down the line here. So there might be some tweaks, some things might be adjusted, but they're confident it will pass the Senate. Um, that's really, really exciting. Not only do we have the infrastructure bill, but we have mm -hmm. uh, the first half of Congress passing the Build Back Better Act. Um, as Vice President Joe Biden would say, this is a BFD. And... Uh, <laughs> I don't know that that's what Vice President Harris would say, but certainly what what the Veep said um, back right. when Obama passed um, uh, Obama when Care Obamacare yeah. passed. Um, people did a tremendous amount of work electing the folks who would get this passed, putting pressure on them since then. But our job isn't over um, now, and I think you kind of. T tapped into this a little bit um, in last week's podcast. The message now is that this passed, that Biden got it passed, that um, a Democratic majority in the House and the Senate got this passed. Um, and we need to make sure that voters know what's in this and that they remember come the midterms that it was Democrats that passed one of the biggest 
and most important um, social packages in, in our nation's history. Yeah, absolutely. And we know 100% without a shadow of a doubt that every single Republican that did not vote for this, which is every single Republican, will try to take credit for it and will go to their districts and say, look at all this great stuff that you got. And uh, and so we need to make sure that uh, I, I'll, I'll say uh, Speaker Pelosi and her team have been doing a great job of putting out videos highlighting these um these Republican uh, representatives who are talking in town halls or talking to their constituents, you know, about the infrastructure package specifically, which has already gone, been passed, and all the great things that are going to come to the district because of that and saying, wait a minute, you did not vote for that. Make sure that everyone knows that you didn't vote for that. And, and that's, that's really important. Um, how we talk about this, how we find common ground on this, uh, we will go into more detail with Anat, who is brilliant and um, does not disappoint in her third turn on our podcast. So I'm excited for people to hear that. Awesome. Um, yeah, I say let let them let them talk about them so that so that voters know. And, and then pile on with what Pelosi and those folks are doing. I'm going to look out for that because that's something that I can share. Like if they're putting out videos, I love sharing videos on my Twitter and my Facebook mm-hmm. and uh, letting folks know, ampl- amplifying their message. That's my job now. Great. Yeah. If you don't follow Speaker Pelosi's uh, Twitter account, which I'm sure you do, but for anyone listening who doesn't, please follow her and uh, and amplify her tweets because... Uh, they're important. I'm sure you do anyway. <laughs> I'm sure. Yes, listener. Do. I'm sure a listener Aww. follows Speaker Pelosi. So good, good, good legislative news um, this week. Some challenging justice type news. Yeah. Uh, um, the Ahmad Ar- Arbery trial has gone to the jury. Um, you know, this feels like it should be like a slam dunk. Mm-hmm. But every time I say that, I'm I'm disappointed. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, kind of holding my breath on on this one. I'll be honest, I I don't know what else to say about this. Mm-hmm. I think we've talked about the fact that, you know, it it's uh concerning that the the jury is there's one person of color on the entire jury. Right. Um Concerning that um, the defendants in this trial, uh, their attorneys have been denied, denied, denied that there's any sort of racial component. Um, I think the prosecutors have done a good job of saying, you know, they would not have shot shot Amar, Ahmaud Arbery if he wasn't black. You know, they've shown, I think one of the things that's come up in this is that the the shooters were concerned that Arbery had been on a construction site, like poking around. And, and there's video footage of many people going to that construction right. site and looking around because that's what people do. They find these things interesting. And so there's, you know, white kids going to look, white adults going to look. And then there's Ahmaud Arbery. Um, and he was the one that was chased down and, and shot. So, And then, of course, we have the Rittenhouse verdict, which mm-hmm. is... Uh, you know, the chilling thing about the Rittenhouse verdict, uh, especially for us activists who are out there at protests and uh, and fighting for um, fighting for all of our rights, fighting, uh, exercising our First Amendment rights and and protesting, 
um, it it makes everyone feel less safe. It's this whole notion that vigilantes can uh, mm-hmm. take it upon themselves to uh, to go in and, and do this, and and that they will be protected and acquitted. Um, it's uh, I I don't have a lot to say about it either, other than um, it, it was not unexpected. I actually expected the written house verdict to go this way based on what I was seeing from the trial, but um, it is really jarring and scary. Yeah, that's that's I, literally as you were saying the word jarring. I I was thinking it, and it wasn't the verdict that was jarring. It's still just bizarre to see this. You know, the video. There's so much video footage, and so much was shown during the trial of this kid out with this rifle. And when you think about uh, being able to protest peacefully uh, or you know things things in uh Kenosha had um gotten very strange was probably an, a good indication that a 17 year old with a gun shouldn't have been out there but yeah. you you see that you see like the McCloskeys in St. Louis pointing their weapons at right. peaceful protesters walking by their their home pointing their weapons at each other um inadvertently <laughs> which you know so the the whole thing was super dangerous you know we saw um, people, pro- peaceful protesters outside the White House getting smoke, smoked out. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all super concerning. And as long as we live in a country where a 12-year-old black kid with a toy gun is going to be killed by police and a 17-year-old white kid with a real gun is going to be just fine, we're going to need to keep protesting. That's right. Um, and so we need to be able to do that safely. And this whole uh, trial and the and the subsequent verdict um, doesn't make me feel that that we can do that safely, but that but but that's why we have to keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's this it's this awful awful circle, and it's what happens when when you have a system that is just brutally racist. Yeah, well said. There's no other way to say it, um, and. Uh, like I said, there's no other way to look at it. You can't objectively watch these trials go down and uh, deny that. So, so a mixed mixed bag of news. It is Thanksgiving week, and um, and we have uh, you know a lot to worry about and a lot that you know makes us sad. But we have a lot to celebrate and be grateful for um, mm-hmm. as this year rolls to an end. I can't believe 2021 is almost over. <laughs> it seems like it's gone so fast. Uh, Let's celebrate some more heroes by talking about our Hero of the Week. This week's Hero of the Week is a young kid named Ayan Maladina. He's a 13-year-old from Austin, and he is a representative from an incredible organization called Teens for Vaccines, and we will put their link on our show notes. It's teensforvaccines.org. And uh, over the weekend, I was in our California Democratic Party executive board meetings all weekend. And uh, for our opening session, uh, Ayan was invited to come and speak to our executive board delegation about the work he's doing. And he, he was so great. He was, first of all, 
got to run for office, you know, someday, <laughs> future, you know, leader of our country. Um, but it's it's such a simple organization that is all over the country uh, helping teens get vaccinated and understanding the importance of the vaccine and, and why they should. And, uh, and so he's saving a lot of lives by doing that. Uh, it's especially poignant right now during Thanksgiving when families are you know, mm-hmm. for this Thanksgiving in particular, getting together for the first time, really, since the pandemic. So I just wanted to take a moment to recognize Ayan um, and the incredible work that Teens for Vaccine is doing as our Hero of the Week. Oh, that's awesome. Teens for Vaccines. I love it. <laughs> um, it is Thanksgiving week, but as we do every week, we still have a to-do list. So let's talk about this week's to-do list. Um, I I love these to-do items because they were at first at first I was like, oh gosh, it's a holiday week. We can't ask people to work. But no, this is this is, <laughs> Put the turkey this is the in, fun stuff. <laughs> mash the sweet potatoes. What else is on the to-do list? <laughs> um, this is a time to express gratitude. And how often do you think these um, elected officials and their staffers get expressions of gratitude? <laughs> sort of never. <laughs> <laughs> they have about the same uh, chance of getting words of gratitude from their constituents as a fully vaccinated and boosted person has going into the hospital because of coronavirus. Wow. How'd you like that, that was, analogy? <laughs> that, was, that was beautiful. That was beautiful. Um, yeah. So this week's to-do list is uh, express gratitude to our representatives and thank them for passing the Build Back Better Act. Maybe if you, maybe if you live where someone voted against it, like you can, you you still have the opportunity to send them a nasty gram. <laughs> but but the rest of us can express gratitude. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, uh, a hearty f you on Thanksgiving is also <laughs> welcomed for people who didn't vote for it. But um, uh, no matter what's going on uh, in our worlds, I think it's always good to look at what we're grateful for and. Um, uh, there's certainly a lot to be grateful for. So uh, call your reps and thank them. All right. So those are our marching orders for the week. Um, and also to enjoy yourself over Thanksgiving. Yes. But uh, before you do that, stick around. Uh, we've got an amazing interview coming up. And then our reasons for hope and gratitude. Anat Shankar Asario is the host of the amazing Words to Win by podcast and principal of ASO Communications. She is the messaging and communications expert, and her work has helped win progressive electoral and policy victories all across the globe. Uh, Her work's also been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Boston Globe, Salon, among others. And she's the author of the book, Don't Buy It. The Trouble with Talking Nonsense About the Economy. Anat, thank you for being back with us on How We Win. You are our first three-peat, so. <gasps> wow. Is there some sort of, do I get a prize? Does, does it come with a prize? You, it sh- you know what? I, I Send me your address or give me your address offline and I will send you a How We Win mug. You, des- you have earned a How We Win mug. All right. Those, those are coveted. Um, very few people have them. Pretty, pretty much just me. 
But um, anyway, and uh, another fun fact about uh, the last time you were here, it was exactly a year ago. And really? Yeah, you were our Thanksgiving episode a year ago. So I, I see a tradition kind of uh, blooming here. I, I seem to recall some conversation we had about uh, the whole purpose of Thanksgiving was just to get more pie or something like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny for me to do the Thanksgiving episode because I frequently get dragged into the what to say to your racist uncle. Like, <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that's a question I get asked frequently. So maybe that's why I'm on the Thanksgiving circuit. Okay. Well, what do you say to your racist uncle? <laughs> well, you have to give me a, a more ample prompt. You have to be the uncle and give me a for instance. Oof, yuck. I don't, what does he say? I, I don't want to role play the, the racist uncle. I mean, if you're not going to role play, then what am I going to do? I have to have more, I mean, at least like a topic. Yeah. Well, um, it was interesting. We were. I was talking last week on the show with. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Pantsuit Politics podcast. Another excellent show. And Sarah and Beth uh, have a holiday huddle that they just did about how to have conversations. And and we were talking about a good place to start. Um, would be like, how do you all feel about banning books in general? Like, is that a good thing? You think a good direction for us to be going in? So yeah. I think that's really, really smart to start in a place where people um, generally have shared agreement. I would tweak it slightly mm -hmm. to start off the question with a positive affirmation of what you stand for. And so rather than beginning with, how do you feel about banning books? Because that's likely to engender, well, they're not banning books or they're mm. just banning this thing. Rather say... You know, I don't know about you, but I'm a mom and I have kids in public school. And to me, it's really, really important that they be challenged, that they learn about the mistakes of our past, that they learn about things as they really were, the truth of our history. Because I think kids are pretty strong and I think kids are pretty courageous and I think they're pretty smart. And I think kids can detect when we're BSing them. And they need to know about what really happened so they can reckon with the mistakes of our past and so they can understand our present and create a better future. I would start there and then go into, you, you know, the, the questions around book banning and whatever. But in general, the advice is to start from a place of saying what you are for mm -hmm. and saying what you are for in the language of a higher order value, because subversively what you're doing there is you're claiming the moral high ground. It's much, much harder for someone to then come back and say, well, I don't think kids are courageous or I don't think kids are resilient or <laughs> right. I don't think we should teach the truth or I don't think that kids should learn about the mistakes of our past. Than and it racist, is for them. racist uncle very well may, might say that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, very well might. And, you know, we also need to just be realistic and recognize that with certain people, there is nothing you can possibly say. Mm -hmm. They are not going to be persuaded. And with those people, it's best to just, I guess, put pie in their face. <laughs> Which is what they wanted to begin with anyway. So, I mean, I guess <laughs> at least you're doing a small favor. Well, that leads into what is really central 
to your work and really important, and we've talked about it before on the show, but it, it bears repeating, and that's race-class narrative uh, as sort of the central way that we communicate. Uh, we had, uh, and I learned this from listening to your podcast, but we had Heather McGee on our show um, a few months ago, who, any chance to plug her and the Some of Us, her incredible book, I will take it. She's great, but I didn't realize that she helped develop race-class narrative with you. Is that correct? Yeah. Heather was the president of um, a think tank called Demos at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, wonderful, wonderful, incredible collaborator, person, thinker, all of the things, all of the things yeah. that Heather is. And yeah, um, when Ian Haney Lopez, uh, who literally wrote the book, Dog Whistle Politics, approached me about doing a giant messaging research project to look at how we could fuse together race and class, he had a longstanding relationship with Heather. He was, I think, a fellow at Demos. And so when we were thinking about what would be a natural institutional home for uh, what was then a research project um, and has since become this this entire concept, the race class narrative, uh, we brought it to Demos. And so, yes, Heather was one of the original founding partners of the endeavor. Well, um, I I feel just lucky to be able to be somewhere in Ural's orbit and talking to you. It's been uh, a great privilege for me to learn from you all. Um, can you describe race class narrative? Give us, you know, sort of, I, I guess, talk about it and, and how we should use it when we talk to voters. Yeah. So the race class narrative is a message, but it is also a messaging architecture. And what I mean by that is it is a way of communicating that has certain helpful, I think helpful, rules about it. It has an order. Uh, There is a way that you say the things, um, the sentences that don't mix and match. And that order is that it begins with a shared value, pretty much as I said before, that explicitly names race. Mm -hmm. So that opening sentence, to make that more concrete, let's say you want to talk about wages. So you might use an opening sentence like, no matter what we look like or where we come from, most of us believe that people who work for a living ought to earn a living. But let's say instead you are going to engage in a conversation about immigration or the border or whatever. That opening sentence might say whether we're black or white, Latino or Asian, native or newcomer. Most of us believe that America is supposed to be the land of the free and the home of the brave, and that's a good thing. Right. So you begin with some sort of an assertion of an idea, a concept, a higher ideal that nearly everyone in your audience shares, even if they don't behave that way, ideologically, they they want mm. to believe that about themselves. And you they make want to believe ex- that about themselves, right. <laughs> and you make explicit that that ideal, that value is shared across races. So you name race there. Then in the second sentence, that is where you name the problem. And you name the problem in a very specific way in order to connect the specific racialized harms and how those harms actually are a backdoor way to harm all of us economically. And so Mm. what that sounds like in language is, but today, a wealthy and powerful few, or but today, a handful of billionaires, or but today, certain politicians, again, depends what you're talking about. Let's go with the last one. But today, certain politicians 
try to turn us against public schools and teachers, spreading lies about what we teach in schools, hoping we'll look the other way while they continue to endanger our kids by denying them vaccines and masks mm -hmm. and take away funding so that they can hand kickbacks to their corporate donors. So in the middle sentence, that is where you call out the villains and you say not just what they are doing, but why. You ascribe motivation. Mm. And you describe what they're doing either as a form of scapegoating, though that word tends to be too high register. Most people aren't quite sure what that means, which is why we say phrases like shame and blame or point the finger at. So you indicate mm. scapegoating. Okay. Or you talk about it as deliberate division or fueling division. And you connect how they are shaming and blaming whichever group that they have decided to villainize and otherize, which is the oldest trick in the book and one they just keep doing because yeah. it does work. You connect that to their ability to then aid and abet plutocracy, essentially. And then in the third sentence, you come back to the shared value, you seal the deal, and you make a call for cross-racial solidarity in service of whatever you're trying to accomplish. So going back, let me do it all together, but with just one topic so that it's more coherent. Okay. No matter what we look like or where we come from, most of us believe that people who work for a living ought to earn a living. But today, wealthy corporations and the politicians they pay for take the wealth our work creates and hold down our wages and refuse us benefits, no matter how hard we are working. Then they try to turn us against each other. So we will shame and blame black people, new immigrants, or people struggling to make ends meet so they can continue to get away with it. By joining together across our differences, we can make this a place where everyone is paid enough to put food on the table and is home in time to eat it. Mm. So. I mean, that was off the cuff. So, you know, you want to edit, copy edit it down, but more or less, that's the structure. Well, your, your off the cuff uh, made me really, really mad at those people and wanting to join together and do something about it. So, I mean, I'm glad it worked on you. If it didn't work <laughs> on you, that would, that would definitely be a problem. Yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here in the choir, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but the choir is where the trouble starts. I mm. think one of our major, major problems, you know, I know you, you said that sort of jokingly off the cuff. But I think the tendency to um, admonish ourselves for, quote, preaching to the choir is actually a really big problem mm. and is a misunderstanding of how persuasion works. So it turns out that turnout is persuasion. If your choir will not sing in harmony from the same songbook, then the congregation is not going to hear the joyful noise. And the congregation isn't going to go out and convert new adherents. This is something that the right wing has understood for generations. When they poll, they do not poll to take the temperature like Democrats do. They poll to change the temperature. Case in point, critical race theory. When you mm. actually look at how critical race theory, for example, and I can take lots of examples, poll, it actually doesn't poll well. People by vast majorities, 80%, 84% in public polls want their kids taught the truth. They want kids to learn the good and bad in their history. They want kids to understand the role that racism has in, in our society to the present day. Even when we ask it that way, the vast majority of people agree.
And so why would they pick this issue? Why would they pick any issue that polls so badly? A Democrat would never do that, right? They would run screaming. Mm. The reason that they do that is because they understand that a phenomenon called social proof is one of the most potent things that that we have for persuasion. And so what they do is they are constantly giving red meat to their base. Mm. They are keeping their base engaged and enraged. And although that base represents a true minority of views, when you are a middle, when you are swing, when you are independent, when you are undecided and you are not paying attention to the details of state legislation because you got stuff to do, and you turn on your news or you're scrolling across your newsfeed and you see these angry vitriolic parents and you're not sure what's going on, you're not sure of the details, and you don't see any of our parents right. who actually are the majority saying anything at all, then you're sort of like, huh, I don't know what's going on, but it seems like people who look kind of like me and have kids kind of like mine, they seem to be upset about this thing. So I guess it's something to be upset about. That's what social proof is. It's the middle school theory of messaging. People do the thing they think people like them do, and they believe the thing that people like them believe. And so it's from there that the right understands that the base is the best messenger of the message. And if the words don't spread, they don't work. Right. And 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 meanwhile, we're here chiding ourselves for preaching to the choir, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of what you actually need to do to get a message to spread. Well, that's um, that's really important. And uh, I, I hear you say that a lot. Like if, if you don't hear the message, the message isn't working. And um, and of course, like it's so difficult in our media landscape to get away from, uh, you know, the vitriol over critical race theory, for example, which is not even a thing. But, um, you know, the, the media loves the negativity. They love the audacious. And that's what they will continue to, to amplify. So um, uh, I guess my question for you, knowing that and also uh, talking about our choir, like the choir that we do have um, coming into the midterms, which are less than a year away, um, what are the messages that we really need? You talk about keeping it simple and repeating it, right? Repetition being key. And like you said, doing it as as the choir. What are the messages that we can really hone in on right now and keep repeating to try to break through that and try to make that message heard? Because it seems like it's a real uphill battle, not just because of our messaging inequities of which Democrats, there are plenty, but also just um, the bias towards coverage of the hate and the uh, the uh, audacious conspiracy theories and all that, even from our liberal outlets. Yeah, there's so much packed in there. Um, let me try to figure out where to start. That so, was a long-winded podcast host question. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. I just want to make sure I actually address all the pieces of it uh, first, which requires me to remember all the pieces of it, which is, you know, I don't know about the rest. I don't know about your listeners, but like, yeah, COVID's taken a toll on what I'm able to, yeah. Um, maybe in the BC times, I, I call them the BC times before COVID, I could have, you know, right. retained all that. All right. Well, basic, so, what's the key message we need to hone in on and yeah, say together yeah. and how do we do it so that it's heard? 
Yeah. So I'm going to first actually start by addressing the piece that you said, which is obviously 100% right about the media. Yes, we need to recognize that people's perceptions of Democrats is not made out of what Democrats say. It's not even made out of what Democrats do. Right. If that were the case, I would be on vacation and that would be a lovely planet to live on. Unfortunately, that is not ours. So the first thing that we need to recognize is what you said, which is that the media likes to cover conflict. And that is not a habit that we are going to change. If if somebody if somebody has a grand plan to change that habit, I would love to hear it. That would be cool. I don't see that happening. And so understanding that, understanding that the media has a bias in terms of what kinds of stories it's willing to tell, we need to say, yeah, there is a conflict. You're absolutely right. There's a conflict between the very richest people on this planet, in this country, and the rest of us. And every single politician standing on our side of this divide is a Democrat. But a handful of politicians who are doing the bidding of big pharma and big oil continue to sell our life and health. They want to sell us for parts. And then they want to turn around and get us to blame each other or blame some group that they decide is at fault because they know that if we join together and demand things like Build Back Better, that we will have the care and supports that every single one of our families need, no matter what we look like or what our zip code. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there's a conflict and that's it. And 70, 80% of Americans are in absolute agreement on what we want and what we expect our politicians to deliver. They just need to get the job done and stop being beholden to these corporate special interests. We need to recast the division as one. We need to redefine who is the we and who is the them rather than allowing that conflict to be cast as interesting democratic infighting, which is how it is mm -hmm. often cast right now. So that's one thing. The other thing to your your other question about, you know, what is the message in the midterms? Look, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It is a historical fact, and it is the trajectory that we are on that the incumbent party gets shellacked in the midterms. That is that that is what happens in almost every case. And we are kidding ourselves if we are not absolutely cognizant of that. The other thing, however, mm -hmm. that is different this time around that we need to internalize and understand is that in 2018 and 2020, we saw unprecedented turnout. Right. And, and most people don't know this, when you look at Biden's margins, Biden won, we're still getting the final data from, um, from the actual voter files, and so the numbers are in between, but Biden won with 2016 voters by 1.52 percentage points. So people who had voted in 2016 who also voted in 2020, Biden was up by 1.52%. But with people who were newly voting in 2020, hmm. he won by 12 points. Wow. So that new cohort of people, our new 18, our new 20, people who, let's remind ourselves, have voted for Democrats within the, the recent past. Right. Those are the people that we need to return out. Mm-hmm. 
in previous times, we have had arguably, arguably, an even harder task, which is initial turnout, turning out for the first time. Voting is a matter we know from decades of study of habituation. Generally speaking, people who vote, vote, and people who don't vote, don't vote. And I know that that sounds facile, but voting is actually really much more like flossing than it is like any other thing. Yeah. And we know this, I mean, you and I have maybe even talked about this. I don't remember. <laughs> but when we experiment with different arguments around voting, you know, let's try this issue, let's try that issue, let's try this candidate, let's try that candidate, which messages make people vote? It turns out that the most effective thing that we can say to make people vote is to talk about voting. Yeah. And being voting a voter. Itself. I mean, we talk about that and with turnout conversations. Yeah, exactly. Being a voter identity because identity proceeds and compels action. Yeah. And so what is it that we need to say to people? We are still figuring it out and boiling it down. The issue, of course, is that the simplest thing to say would be something like Democrats deliver. Now, the question is whether or not that can be felt as real. And we cannot say that at this time because it hinges largely on what happens in Congress and the legislative agenda, how accurate and true that feels. If that feels accurate and true. I, I like then, the distinction you made uh, between whether that is true or whether that feels true. Yeah, exactly. Whether it is true, if it is true, is barely relevant. Right. It's a little bit relevant. <laughs> right. People's perceptions are based on a true story. There, there, there is some sort of semblance, but um, it is made out of the stories that they hear and are told and are repeated over and over again about what is going on in the world. That is what they perceive to be true. Mm -hmm. And so if the story that Democrats deliver, if we can render that to feel true, which does require some things happening in the world, <laughs> it needs to be based on a true story, like I right. said. Then which we that have. Is, we just passed a huge infrastructure package. We did just pass a huge We're infrastructure We're going package. to pass, I really think, the um, reconciliation, the Build Back Better package, too. I also have to believe that. I think that we will be in a very, very different place. At least maybe I am just demonstrating my pathological optimism, which is definitely a strain that I um, <laughs> require in order to do my job. I think that we'll, we'll be having a very different conversation after Build Back Better. I think the challenge with infrastructure, I'm digressing here, is that the gains, the like I walk through the world, I wake up in the morning and my life feels different. I can see the impact of this. It sort of is experiential to me. That's a tough thing with infrastructure, right? Infrastructure oh is about money that is going to be spent in two, five, 10 years. And it is about roads that will get better or bridges and, and a lot of it is just about a counterfactual, right? It's about a bridge that didn't collapse. But right. and you to, didn't, yeah. I was saying, and to our point about the media, there was literally a headline. I I think it was a CNN headline today or yesterday saying um, people aren't feeling the effects of the infrastructure bill yet. Like it's been four. Well, as we record this, like four days. You know, I mean, it was just an asinine headline to say that. Yeah. Like, of course, they're not feeling the effects. Nothing has happened yet, but they will, as you said in five to 10 years. 
Right. So infrastructure, unlike something like stimulus payments or childcare tax credit or things that kind of are immediately direct deposited or come by check to you, it's quite a different impact. Right. Yeah. And so that is a tough thing with infrastructure. I'm just being real. But the the other message, regardless of, you know, what actually happens legislatively, the major thing that we see is that in our messaging, especially from grassroots organizations, especially, you know, when you're not the campaign itself, you're not the candidate itself, you are talking sort of, you're, you're outside. Right. And you are trying to support this endeavor. What we need to do is give voters agency, is make them and not the candidate and not the party the hero of the story. Mm. So what that sounds like is the difference between just, for example, Democrats are, you know, trying to pass this legislation or Democrats want to deliver X, Y, Z or Democrats are poised to, you know, do this kind of bill and create this kind of change. It's the difference between saying that and saying in 2020, you turned out in record numbers. Right. And you delivered immediate relief. You lifted three million kids out of poverty. You shored up our bridges. You made better our ports. You delivered clean energy to every corner of this, or you delivered internet to every corner of this country. And in 2022, you're going to do that and more. Mm. So really, because our target, the behavior that we are trying to alter is the behavior or the, the behavior actually not alter, the behavior we're trying to maintain. Because we are trying to re-turn out. Right. We are not trying to turn out. We are trying, although, you know, I'll take turnout too. Like I'll take first timers. <laughs> I don't mean to discount that. But most of our effort strategically needs to be targeted at what I am calling re-turnout with this group of people that I have named vital voters. By vital voters, I mean came out in 18 or 20 or both. And so another thing that I suspect, and we haven't begun experimenting with this yet, is that we take the finding that we know about identity that you talked about, the calling people a voter rather than just asking them to vote. And we actually create a, a, a new identity category called vital voters. Vital voters are not you and not me. Vital voters are these surge voters who turned out in 18 and 20. Mm -hmm. And we talk about this cohort. We talk to them about them. And we say, you're a vital voter. You are the ones that delivered us from Trump. You are the ones that changed the course of history. You are the ones that made sure that kids could be lifted out of poverty. You are the ones. Yeah. Yes, you did. And so, yes, you can again. <laughs> and so giving this sense that they did something, because the major disconnect that we see, in addition to folks feeling like, and we're seeing this, you know, we're doing focus groups and we're doing surveys pretty much nightly between, you know, different projects and so on. That's a really important point that I just want our listeners to really understand that your your work is so well researched and in a, in a place where lots of people have opinions about messaging, um, it's important to uh, just reiterate how well researched and documented and tested all of your work is. Yeah, everything is tested within an inch of its life in every possible kind of way, qualitatively, quantitatively, through different kinds of modalities, when we can, not just in channel, but also in field, so that we can measure not reported behavior, but actual behavior. Mm -hmm. um, 
yeah, it's really, really important to, because all of us, all of us, all of us, all of us are subject to our own biases and heuristics. And motivated cognition is a hell of a drug for all of us. And by motivated cognition, I mean that we we go out unconsciously in search of evidence that supports what we already believe. Right. And even though, you know, I have training and I have experience and so on, I'm just a person with a human brain like anybody else. And so I have to know that I am also unwittingly yeah. kind of, you know, like it's, it's so not like hard I'm to get away from that. Yeah. Yeah, of course. It's the water we swim in and so right. on, whatever analogy you want to use. And so that is why everything is built upon continuous questioning, continuous testing. And, you know, to state what I'm sure you already know, because this is not a surprising finding, voters are in a place of despair and despondency. I mean, it's really, really, it's bleak. People are telling us they are actively turning away from political news. They are actively like something comes over my feed, something comes on the TV radio, whatever, and I turn it off if I can tell it's political. Mm. And so the question is not just how do we make them feel like, you know, things could be better or, you know, there is a positive, there is a better vision and so on, but how is their own action and not just any old action, but the action of civic engagement, the action of voting, the action of, you know, calling your member of Congress, the action of signing a petition, the action of whatever we're asking the action to be, usually voting. How does that actually meaningfully contribute to a change in your life? Because what hap what's happening now, understandably, is a lot of people are disengaging from the political process because they're like, well, the political process doesn't actually deliver anything. Right. And so I'm going to put my eggs over here in the volunteering through my church basket mm -hmm. or the, you know, cleaning up my neighborhood or the doing mutual aid. I mean, people are still out there hustling, obviously, and they're still out there connecting and they're still out there contributing and they're still out there um, standing with and for each other. They just if they do not believe that meaningful change can come to their life through the act of voting, then yeah. why would they bother? Well, I think that's so compelling and that's really um, kind of a clear path forward, at least in the immediate terms with work we have to do uh, when we're out there trying to register new voters, when we're trying to appeal to, as you said, these really important newer voters. And it's not it's not an old story too. It's, it's the basic, your vote matters. Right. It's it's, you know, making people feel like their vote is going to have an impact. And and I love the way that you have framed it to that. These newer voters, they're the ones that delivered all of this. Your, your vote uh, not only is going to have an impact, but it had this incredible impact and it will continue to do that. Um, I'm butchering it already, but I'll go back and listen to it and practice later. But um, you're going to hate my next line of questioning here because it it, it just it feeds into this, but when we're talking about, I think the other thing I like about this is it really is universal. I mean, we get so uh, hung up in like local messages and how that differs from community to community and what are the issues that we need to be talking about. And, and, and this, as you said, it puts it on the voter, just that they're important. Um, I 
uh, was on one of your briefings and heard um, the amazing Representative Jamie Raskin say that uh, history has shown us we have to build a coalition with the center right to defeat the rise of fascism. Um, I think your answer is going to be critical race theory, that that messaging and that practice and centering the voter. But, um, you know, how do we do that? Like, uh, the, trying to articulate this because for me, I really believe that our progressive values um, and the people that we leave behind, the people that we don't talk to, those are the people you're talking about. Those are the people who actually showed up in these last two elections, the people that we don't generally reach out to because Democrats want to go to the you know, center, center left, center right to appeal to these you know, what we call the swing voters which I don't really believe in this climate exist. Like, you know, people have drawn their lines in the sand. They're voting the way they're voting. So uh, it behooves us to reach out to more of our people who don't, who are disenfranchised, who don't get attention. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. so how, so how do we, how do we do what representative Raskin said? Uh, because we do need to def uh, defeat plutocracy and fascism, how do we do that? Yeah. So I, I want to draw a distinction and, and I mean, I can't speak for representative Raskin and he's not here, so we can't ask him, but I know his record really well. And I've listened to him a lot. And I mean, he's just an incredible human being on like every possible dimension, yeah. um, as a, just as a person, but also, and as a member of Congress and so on. Um, he was speaking really specifically not about electoral politics and not about voting and not about he i mean i don't want to put words in his mouth because that's a dangerous thing to do i would if 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 i were a betting person i would place my chips on him sharing the strategy that you articulated and that i also very very much believe in that you engage the base and you engage the base for the reasons you stated but also because engaging the base is actually the way that you persuade the middle as I said before, right, right. that even if what you wanted was to focus and fixate on these, you know, middle America white people, still the way that you would reach them is through engaging the base. Because there is a reason, and I promise I will get to your question, there is a reason why in the summer of 2020, with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests that we all saw after the murder of George Floyd, if you track the public opinion about Black Lives Matter, it it, it went up formidably mm -hmm. in that period, right? Why? Because social proof. When you turn on your TV and you are looking at protests across this country and around the world, you know, in little bitty, tiny podunk towns in Idaho and in really, really big city, you know, in New York City and, and every kind of place and obviously concentrated in the Twin Cities in Minnesota for, you know, for reasons we know. Mm -hmm. That is like, oh, this is what people like me think. This is what, this is the zeitgeist. This is common sense. This is what is right. This is sort of where people are at. That is actually how you persuade. Turnout is persuasion. So yeah. 
even if all you cared about was that persuasion bit, you would still focus on engaging the base. But anyway, that, I digress. Well, that's the other side of the example you were giving earlier with the critical race theory, which is very it is unpopular. exactly the same. But um, but putting it to the forefront, it's taking, um, and we do this, we can do this a lot with our progressive, what, what the right wants to paint as very progressive and maybe even some centrists think are extreme progressive, uh, you know, like Medicare for all, or how about, you know, paid family leave, like that's, Every other industrialized country does that. It's not really it's not really a progressive uh, issue, but it's painted as that. But when we come together, amplify that message enough, it becomes a center issue, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, but back to the question, what Representative Raskin was talking about and something that, you know, we saw in the aftermath of the election and the incredible effort to make sure that every vote was counted and that the will of the people did indeed prevail. What he means is that in order to protect basic democratic principles mm. of, you know, properly administered elections, uh, election officials who are independent and who are nonpartisan actors as opposed to state legislatures being the ones that count every vote and say, yes, this was the answer. This is how many people voted for this person and that person in this state. Having a state legislature that is decidedly a rubber stamp that does not get to decide whether or not they like the results. They simply receive the results from the election administrators. And they're like, election administrator says this, this is the answer. All of our electoral votes go to this person, right? right. The basic fundamental sort of foundational ground zero principles of democracy in order to have one, that every single eligible person has a vote and every single one of those votes is counted and every single one of, I mean, in America, we don't even have this, and every single one of those votes has equal weight, which is not the case no. because of the Electoral College at the presidential level and because of gerrymandering. And the Senate. So we don't even have that, at, but everybody gets to vote, everybody's vote is counted. That's, you know, thing one, thing two. All those votes, we add them together and the winner is the winner. That's thing three, right? What he is saying is that in order to preserve that basic thing, that is where you have to have some strange bedfellows. And what people probably didn't notice or didn't recognize is, and, you know, I say, I, I don't relish this. I'm just saying what happened. I, you know, do I like this? I don't like this. Mm. Part of what inhibited Trump and his criminal cabal from being successful at sabotaging and overturning our election was that the Chamber of Commerce was like, no, no, dude, no. Mm. Right. Big businesses that are no friend to working people, that are no friend to basic fundamental precepts of decency, like people should get paid for the work that they do, et cetera. And people should be able to care for their families and have health, you know, and see a doctor and everything else that decent people should believe and make happen. That was a big part. Let's not kid ourselves. That was a big part of the reason why Trump wasn't able to be successful because there was a line in the sand from huge center-right institutional forces. And while there was relatively little standing up on the 
part of Republican administrators or lawmakers. You know, there was some, right? And I don't give them any brownie points for this, right? You don't get brownie points for just like not being a complete and total criminal. Right. (laughs) But, you know, things like the Secretary of State in Georgia saying, no, I'm actually, I am going to count the vote. Like, um, I'm going to count the votes and then I'm going to say that the winner is the winner. Um, That's what he means by recognizing that there has to be some kind of common cause with center-right. He doesn't mean in terms of electoral strategy or how we court voters or how we decide where to target money. He means in terms of things like passing the Freedom to Vote Act, Mm -hmm. in terms of the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, in terms of a legislative agenda, um, we have a part of that is making things like giant corporations understand that in order to continue to do business and make bucket loads, infinite amounts of money here, you need the fundamental structure of fairness, of democracy, even though we don't have it and we have never had it. You need at least the simulacrum mm. of I'm voting look that word and up of later. counting. Yeah, it needs to at least look like this is a place where we get to utter the word democracy and not laugh out loud, which of course is barreted because we've never had one. Yeah. Well, thank you for clarifying that. And I will, uh, uh, I think we should have Jamie Raskin on our show uh, soon. So we'll work on that. (laughs) Obviously he's always welcome on our show. That'd be incredible. Um, You're going to hate this question because I know you uh, you love to wallow in your snark, but I'm going to ask you the same one. You know what's coming uh, to wrap up here. Um, And it's been a year here since we've talked and we are approaching Thanksgiving again. So what brings you hope for this coming year? What brings me hope? Um, Well, I mean, the reason that I'm hesitating is because there's no way to formulate this answer without risking sounding like an asshole. Um, <laughs> so don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. Okay. So I am wrapping up making this second season of the podcast and hmm. the podcast is a narrative podcast. It's um, different to an interview show where, you know, you talk to one person, you edit that and you air it. It's more this American lifestyle where it's a series of vignettes. I talk to lots of different people. We play ads. If applicable, we share the research that was done, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And so it takes a while to make each episode because, you know, we're, we're all these different sources and people. And in the first season, all of the campaigns that I profiled were campaigns that I had really insider knowledge of. I had played either a a major role or I had at least played some sort of advisory role. So I knew like who was who I knew, I knew something about what was going on in this season. It's a mix. It's a mix of campaigns that I had some hand in, even if it was, you know, pretty minimal. Like I, I did a, a messaging session for them or a workshop. I at least knew kind of who was in charge, what they were doing, what they were thinking Mm -hmm. and campaigns that I just admired from afar Mm -hmm. and hadn't was like, Oh wow, look, they did that. And so what that's meant, sorry, this is a long answer, is that I have gotten to spend the last few months, three, four months, learning about these victorious campaigns around the world and how they did it that I didn't know about. Mm. And listening to 
for example, the episode, um, the fourth episode, which is called Buena Politica, Good Politics, about this candidate from the Dominican Republic, Jose Horacio Rodriguez. By the way, we're releasing that episode entirely in Spanish as well as entirely in oh, English. Oh, that's so cool. Very fancy. The yeah. Argentina episode about legalizing abortion also entirely in Spanish wow. um, and in English. So here you have this person who was from a like little itty bitty just formed party in a country that essentially had, you know, the most kind of rampant corruption, pay to play policy. I mean, everything you can possibly imagine under the sun forever and ever and ever since the overthrow of the Trujillo dictatorship. And you have this like grassroots group of people with no money no money, who'd never done electoral stuff before. And they're like, okay, we're going to run. <laughs> we're going to run for Congress here. <laughs> right. And we have nothing. And like, you know, we have, and and they didn't just win. I mean, you know, the, the thing about the podcast, there's no dramatic tension in the podcast. Uh, <laughs> every episode is about a campaign we won. So they're, you know, we couldn't like hold off the like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is he's going to win. That's that's what happens. <laughs> well, so- that story and how they won and the choices that they made about what to say down to right before the congressional election, the government suspended elections. And so then they had to deal with that in, at the municipal level. So there weren't elections. There was like a giant protest. And then they took weeks to count. And if you don't have people stationed at every counting booth that are overseeing the count, mm -hmm. they just take your votes. And so they had to deal with that and they won. And they didn't just win. He got more votes than any person in his district has ever gotten. Wow. And he represents the, the part of the capital city. So anyway, that campaign, legalizing abortion in Argentina, defeating the far right in Switzerland, People are doing really incredible things against just, I mean, the most absurd odds, the most absurd odds. And they're winning and it's not happening big enough and it's not happening fast enough and it's not happening enough places, I grant you, but it is happening. And so what gives me hope is that I know that when we speak our truth to each other, right, that we can win, hmm. that more people believe in what we believe than don't, and that our opposition isn't actually the opposition as big and horrible and terrible as they are, and they are. Our opposition is cynicism. And so if we can get out of our own way, get out of our own way, by actually reminding people, oh, the opposition is terrible. Oh, we keep losing. Oh, everything is horrible. Oh, the world is a terrible place. Oh, it doesn't matter. You know, even if we win, we still don't legislate and we still don't govern. If we stop it with that discourse, all of which is true, and I understand the desire to say that, I totally do. And that is fine for your indoor voice. But if we, <laughs> if we leave that for our indoor voices and our, you know, kvetching among ourselves, which is necessary, and instead, with our outdoor voices, we talk about the world that we can and should have. That is what creates the will in people to come together to demand it. And then we win. Hmm. 
I love that. That's very inspiring and resonates so strongly with me because uh, as you aptly stated, we have so much to overcome in the midterms. And, um, you know, you said historically the, uh, the party that's in power gets shellacked in the midterms. On top of that, we're facing so much voter suppression um, and, uh, and just fighting against the big lie and, and is so and gerrymandering, and yeah. the terrible gerrymandering. We're seeing every day it seems like there's a new this is worse than all the others that comes out as we're seeing the maps released. So we have a lot to overcome, but I, I, I love your message because we have overcome so much. We had in the middle of a global pandemic, we were able to turn out more people uh, that have ever showed up for a presidential election before. And as you said, there was you know millions of brand new voters who showed up to vote in the last two elections. And, um, and so, yes, we have a lot to overcome, but when we do it together, I believe we can overcome. And, you know, we, we've had some unprecedented uh, elections in the last few years. So um, uh, I don't know how much we can look to history to see what's going to happen in the midterms, but I do know that uh, we all need to do our work. I know that our listeners do. I, I appreciate you so much. You, you know, we could go on for hours and hours. You're really one of my favorite people, and I'm so grateful for your work in this space. For those of you who wanted to take notes during this podcast, you do have asocommunications.com, right? Is it .com or .org? .com. Right. As, asocommunications.com, where you genu- uh, generously lay out uh, race class narrative and a lot of these things. So I encourage people to go on there and, um, and check out all the tools that you have available for people to help with their messaging. And, uh, and you know, congratulations on the podcast. It's spectacular. Good luck with that. And um, have a nice holiday. I hope to see you soon. Yeah, have a wonderful holiday. Thank you so much. Okay, so Thanksgiving week, we're talking not just about our reasons for hope, but our reasons for gratitude. I'm conflating the two because I, 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 I'm, I'm actually combining them. In they go head. hand in hand. Gratitude and hope goes hand in hand. Yeah. So um, I just have felt, and you know, part of it is because I've I've done a little bit of traveling very safely. I feel like we're a step closer to to normalcy. This is, you know, the second holiday season that that we've been in this pandemic. Um, and uh, you know, health officials have said, you know, if you're vaccinated, go ahead, enjoy your family and friends inside. Um, and that feels good. I went to a, an outdoor concert this mm-hmm. weekend and that felt really good to like be around like excited, happy people. Um, so I'm just so grateful for that feeling. And it gives me hope that we are at, you know, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I know we're not quite there yet. Um, so I'm not fully letting my guard down. I hope nobody else is either, but I feel for the first time in a long time that um, we've been given the go-ahead to like enjoy each other, and that's really important to me. Um, so that's my reason for hope and gratitude this week. Steve, what's yours? Well, that's a great reason for gratitude and hope. I have the same as as I said. I'm here in D.C. Um, with my family for the holidays, and um, and that's really nice to be able to be with my 
elderly parents. Um, you know, for my gratitude, I was thinking I was politically minded when I was thinking about what I'm grateful for, um, mm-hmm. because uh, there is so much to be grateful for um, mm. right now. Uh, we have uh, already passed historic um bills the infrastructure bill and now i really do believe um, by the end of the year we'll have the build back better act passed through the senate as well Uh, as you said the really the most historic investment in our country uh in the history of our country and when i think about all all of that work it really boils down to our listeners and our activists and our volunteers that i'm so so grateful for because it happened because of you. It happened because of everyone who made phone calls, who wrote letters um, during a global pandemic, helped us win uh, the presidency and then go back and win those seats in Georgia in that special election. Under the most unlikely odds, we overcame them and put ourselves in the position to be able to pass this legislation. And this is what happens when we elect Democrats. They actually are able to get stuff done. I I just couldn't have more gratitude. And as we come into the midterms, which, you know, I'm scared. There's a lot more to overcome. We're seeing these terrible um, redistricting maps coming out, and we're seeing more legislation being passed in Republican-held states to suppress the vote. Um, And we have even more to overcome. And I would, frankly, be almost overwhelmingly discouraged about our chances in the midterms if I didn't know that our volunteers were going to show up in the huge way that they have in the last couple Mm. of elections. So our volunteers, our listeners, you give me gratitude and you give me hope. And uh, and I I really am excited to continue this work in the year to come. Mm, Beautifully said, beautifully said. Thank you, everyone for joining us uh, during this holiday week. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. What's your reason for gratitude? We want to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at swingleft.org or tweet to us at bluesboysteve and at Mariah underscore Craven. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods and share our show on social media. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, sign up to volunteer. We really appreciate you being here with us. Uh, Have a great Thanksgiving week and we'll be back with some more next Wednesday. See you then. Bye.